Welcome to the show, everybody. We've got my boy Monsel Denton back on. Uh, for those of you that are, don't recognize Monsel by name, he is the guy that I have been on a couple of sacred hunts with. Uh, absolutely phenomenal guest. And we dive deep into everything Monsel's been up to. He's writing a book. Of course, Monsel's um, one of Dr. Will Tegel's mentees. I guess that's how you call it. So he's, he's, he's drawn a lot of wisdom. If you liked last week's episode with Dr. Will Tegel, you're going to love this one. And also check out the links in the show notes because we will be offering uh, a few spots that are left for our hunting trip coming up in Hawaii. And of course, we'll be diving deep into that on this episode. There are many ways you can support this podcast. Leave us a five-star review. That way other people get to check it out with one or two ways that the show has helped you out in life. And check out our sponsors. We are brought to you by Biome Health, the company co-founded by the renowned scientist who named the mycobiome, Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum. These guys have been guests on the show as well. And they have created an online interactive gut assessment tool based on nearly five years of collected microbiome data, one of the largest comprehensive microbiome data sets in the world. Consumers can log on to guttesting.com to answer a short series of demographic, health, lifestyle, and diet questions. Once they've completed the questions, which takes about two minutes, I did this already, it, it goes super quick. They will be giving insights regarding the likelihood of their gut being imbalanced, their associated gut score, and whether they are more likely to have higher levels of candida compared to levels of normally found in the gut. Uniquely from other online health quizzes that simply apply widely available research, Biome Health's gut assessment gives consumers insights based on analysis of millions of proprietary data points that incorporate microbiome data with clinical data, including diet, exercise, stress, and lifestyle information. The algorithms were created by incorporating the data from Biome's at-home microbiome test, the Biome Gut Test that assesses both the bacteria and fungi of an individual's microbiome with additional clinical and lifestyle data. These guys are... Freaking fantastic. I'm having them back on the podcast. I absolutely love what they're up to. Check it out at guttesting.com and use code KKP to save 20% off for all listeners. That's guttesting.com, code KKP for 20% off for all listeners. We're also brought to you by one of my favorite supplement companies on the planet, Organifi. Organifi was started by my brother from another mother, Drew Canoli, who's been a guest on this podcast. Um, He's got a fantastic story. After experiencing his own transformation through the power of juicing superfoods, Drew Canoli, the Organifi founder, set out to inspire others by helping them transform their health through their personal coaching programs. Drew quickly realized there was a need for a solution that could give people access to the highest quality organic nutrition to support their health and wellness goals while on the go. So I travel a lot, and even when I'm not traveling a lot, I get pretty damn busy having uh, a child under one and then a six-year-old ball of dynamite that just never runs out of energy. And what I find is sometimes I just I just want to have a grass-fed burger, and that's it, but I want to round that out, and I can mix up in a shaker in no time my organic greens juice and round out the edges around everything that I might be missing in my diet. Of course, that doesn't replace actually eating organic food, but when I'm in a pinch, this stuff comes in handy and it tastes absolutely phenomenal. That's one of the things I really appreciate about Organifi's whole product line is there isn't a single thing where I'm like, meh, all of it tastes phenomenal. The Organifi Red, the Green, and my personal favorite, the Gold, are all incredible. Their protein powders are incredible. Highly convenient. Each superfood blend is easy to use by simply mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, providing you with quality nutrition, 
throughout the day. You don't need one of those little blender jobbers, you know, the portable ones that go, if you're doing like bulletproof coffee or any of that kind of, you don't need any of that. All you need to do is just shake it up or you mix it with a spoon. All products are less than three grams of sugar and they're all highly cost effective. Start your day with essential superfoods that help reduce stress and reset your morning. The green juice contains a clinical dose of ashwagandha, which helps to control cortisol levels, which aid in weight management, and a whole host of other things that are very important. 11 superfoods for resetting the body and feeling amazing. It takes just 30 seconds. No shopping, chopping, juicing, or blending. Like I said, it's got 600 migs of ashwagandha and a whole host of other adaptogens. One of my favorite things to have at home or on the road. You can learn more about Organifi Green or the Gold, which is absolutely phenomenal at nighttime. It's, my, it's a, one of my go-tos for winding down. It's got lemon balm and a bunch of other amazing plants in there, as well as turmeric for inflammation and goodies like that that really do help you sleep better. Check out www.organifi.com slash KKP and use code KKP for 20% off your entire order. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash KKP with KKP at checkout for 20% off. We're also brought to you by Sovereignty. Sovereignty has reformulated their old supplement, Purpose. My favorite all-time nootropic. That's saying a lot, considering I helped develop nootropics for a few years at a very popular and well-known supplement company on it. Uh, I absolutely love Purpose. It's my favorite because it's it's a one-two punch of energy as well as nootropic. And this Purpose Plus is an Ayurvedic-inspired super formula that tackles daily energy and peak performance that will empower and support your mind and body to achieve new levels of productivity. Purpose Plus is a powerful blend of herbs and supporting constituents that energize and deliver what customers have described as Zen Focus. Now, remember, I actually went through some testing where they tested um, HRV and a number of other things, including metabolic rate. So metabolism increased and HRV increase. Typically, these two, these two things are like a teeter-totter. If I increase my energy, most likely, that's going to bring me into a state of fight or flight. And maybe not all the way into fight or flight, but it's going to kick on the sympathetic nervous system. If I'm increasing HRV, that's most likely I've activated the parasympathetic, rest and digest. That's when I'm calm. That's when I'm meditating. To increase both at the same time is highly novel. I have never seen it before. I've never heard of it before. I've never experienced it before until taking Purpose Plus. This product is absolutely one of a kind. And this Zen Focus is the result of very careful combination of over 25 adaptogenic herbs, CBD, and CBG, and seven clinically studied ingredients with scientifically supported synergistic supplements chosen for their support of cognition, energy, and mood. The result is focus you can feel. This shit is amazing, period. Use code, use code KKP for 20% off your purchase. Head to HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O slash Kyle to grab my favorite CBG supplements. Again, sovereignty.co slash Kyle. And of course, one click it in the show notes. Last but not least, the best coffee on the planet, Four Sigmatic Coffee, is absolutely phenomenal. And this episode is brought to you by it. So we've got some great news. We've got fat deals lined up that are exclusive only for my listeners, up to 40% off plus free shipping on different mushroom coffee bundles. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is real, organic, fair trade, single origin Arabica coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. 
I've been starting my day with Four Sigmatic's ground mushroom coffee with lion's mane instead of regular coffee, and I love how it helps me focus and get shit done. It's amazing. I can absolutely feel an uptick in my productivity every time I drink it. It helps me focus like nothing else. And best of all, it tastes way less acidic and I don't get jittery. I don't know if it's the, you know, the, the, the balancing of the chaga or the lion's mane increasing uh, the nootropic activity of the brain on different pathways. But what I do know is there's a palpable feel that is different from standard coffee. It's also easy on my gut. Like I said, less acidic and all Four Sigmatic products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. Plus, every single batch is third-party lab tested to ensure its purity and safety so you know you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. And of course, everybody wants to know, does it taste like mushrooms? It does not taste like mushrooms. This is coming from a guy who loves mushrooms. Y'all know this by now. It brews dark and nutty and tastes incredible. And it has over 20,000 five-star reviews. Best of all, these guys back their products with 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. We've worked out an exclusive deal, like I mentioned, for Four Sigmatic with this Kyle Kingsbury podcast and their best-selling mushroom coffee, but it's just for my listeners. So get up to 40% off plus free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com slash KKP. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash KKP. Again, only you wonderful listeners are going to get a hold of this, so get it while it's hot. And without further ado, welcome my dude, Monsel Denton, back on the podcast. Monsel Denton, welcome, welcome into my home and back on the show, brother. Thank you, my friend. Always glad to be able to come hang out with you guys. You guys just did another sacred hunt out in Hunt, Texas. Got our boy uh, uh, Nate and his boy Matt staying here at the house for uh, a few days, a few nights before the hunt and a few nights after. So I've been able to pick up little tidbits and fun stuff from it, but I want to hear about that. I didn't obviously go on this one with you guys. Just finished a trip to Costa Rica for fit for service and don't want to be gone too too many uh, weekends out of the year, especially being gone nine days from the fam. But, um, you know, we've had a... Uh, a lot going on in both of our lives since the last time you were on this show. You in particular, you know, you've had, I think, 15 uh, sacred hunts since the last time you were on the show. Let's let's chat about that and let's chat about your new book that's coming out. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's been a great honor to have men's trust to walk them through this process. And it's also given me a completely different perspective on what hunting is. You know, it's one thing to participate in an activity it's another thing to teach it and the the wisdom and the learnings that come from teaching it are, are completely different super fun hell yeah brother so so unpack uh unpack some of these hunts what you've gleaned from them talk about it what, what's been a big difference on on some of these trips the more experience that you have you know obviously when we when we how you organize them is you take somebody who's into hunting like myself and you, and I'm, I'm saying this loosely, I want you to fill in the gaps, but you grab somebody who's got a following, who's into hunting uh, for them to reach out to their audience and then put together a hunt based on people that want to hunt with say myself and yourself together. Um, so you got guided experts. I'm no expert on hunting, but I, I thoroughly love it and learn something each time I go. And that's kind of how you organize these groups and you do this full time, right? 
It's now yeah. a full-time deal. This is a full-time deal. And I love, uh, really, I love cross-pollinating and, and curating experiences. And so, you know, for someone like you, it's like getting to bring your gifts and your perspectives into the hunting container. Uh, you know, Matt and Nate, whom you've been staying with, they're both, they have so many gifts, you know. Matt's a Navajo hunter, so he brings a lot of traditional culture, which is something that I am really focused on, and he's been doing it from birth, so it's just a little bit of a different perspective. And Nate's a chef. They're both MoveNet and Czech practitioners, so we get to play with movement and things like that, and it's 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 a cross-pollination for some of these experiences that's so unique. And obviously, when you add the things that I've been constantly refining in these experiences, it, it becomes much more a container for transformation than just an opportunity to learn the skill of hunting. As great as the skill of hunting is, there's so much more that can be taken from it, so much more to learn about life, so much more to, to, to see through the lens of hunting as a metaphor for life. And so... I've added, you know, various journaling prompts, some of which you've participated in, which can be really powerful, like just writing a love letter to an animal that you're going to hunt. So you're anthropomorphizing that this thing, you know, has a spirit and can understand and you're really imagining it in your mind's eye. You're sharing the love that you have with it. It completely changes the subconscious relationship with the act of hunting. And that's just one example we do, you know, breath work and medicine work and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And I, I particularly love that journaling prompt because it makes it a little bit more tangible and more real. You know, like you, when in fighting, when you'd fight, it's not like a video game where you fight a question mark and the random character shows up on the screen and, Oh, who's the next guy? And now I go against the boss. Like it's, it's not, uh, it's not that, you know, but people think about, you know, when you raise animals and, and my wife raised a lot of animals for slaughter on the farm and she was there to help birth some of them and then was there with the slaughter of some of them, you know, and they'd give them names. And you think about that a lot, a lot of the time, um, people don't want to name their farm animals because they know they're going to use them for food and they don't want that connection. And really the invitation that you're bringing forward is to name the animal you're going to kill and to build that relationship with them in light of the fact that you're going to kill them, like to, to understand, like you want to harness a deep connection and reverence for the animal that's going to feed and sustain you. And um, really dreaming into that, like it, it, the moment I had written about my animal when we went out to hunt, it was during the snowpocalypse here. Um, it's always funny to give something like that a name, like it almost like uh it takes away the mystical nature of it. You know, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, snowpocalypse 2020 in a fuck all that. Uh, <laughs> when we had the worst snowstorm in 30 plus years in Texas, we were out in hunt Texas about two hours West. And when we had that journaling prompt, I mean, it hit all of us like a ton of bricks and me specifically, I started getting downloads on when it was going to happen, you know, and I, I knew very specifically it was going to be on the backside of a ceremony you know, that we were, we were holding together and, and you were guiding us through. And um, sure enough, every time I went out, you know, even if we'd see them, there wouldn't be the right shot. Uh, we were hunting out at specifically, but out, out there and 
the ranch that we attend to, you know, they've got everything from uh, bison to elk to red stag from Argentina, um, you know, animals from Armenia and all over Europe. And it's, it's, it's really cool because you can't, you're, there's nowhere you're going to find the international <laughs> level of animals like that, you know, animals literally from all over the world. And unfortunately the snowstorm took out quite a few of them, you know, from ones from India and, and warmer weather climates. But all that to say, you know, this, this journaling prompt that seemed super simple at first, I think was the, the, the doorway into me starting to receive information around how this animal was going to present itself to me when it was going to happen and to be prepared for that. And, um, you know, I, I just had uh, your mentor and, and one of my mentors, Dr. Will Tegel, on the podcast Saturday, and he was he was re- you know one of his thesis ideas that he's really getting downloads around from his you know current ways of entering into altered states of consciousness um, centers around how nature itself is trying to bring us back into resonance with it, and that broader perspective of consciousness has been trying to get our attention for long enough. You know, and 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 with with all these awesome practices from plant medicines to breath work, um, to the original Vision Quest, no food, no water, four days, like the ways that we change the dial on the receiver to open ourselves up to um, a different spectrum of consciousness. And now, what he's he's prompting us, he's basically saying that you know, nature's no longer waiting for our participation participation in that. And no longer waiting for us to push pause on our daily lives and connect, you know, out on the vision quest or in the sweat lodge. Nature's going to come to our doors. And that's what he was saying this, this snowstorm was. You know, you go without power, you can't turn your heat on. Um, or even in reverse, you know, he's like, only since 1968 here in Texas did we have air conditioning. That meant every single summer you dealt with the summer heat. You know, sort of frame like how consciousness operated around that. He was working with somebody in big oil and he tells a story on the podcast, but he said that they would wait, you know, until the temperatures dropped before they would stay, you know, at their house. He's working at some giant high rise and he's like, it's, it's a, it's a sex day. I can go home with my wife and, and have sex. It's finally cool enough to make love to my wife. And so, you know, it's a funny story, but you think about that, like how, how nature was interwoven with us. There wasn't, there wasn't as much of a disconnect. Now we've got refrigeration. We've got all these other things and I'm talking about this many times on the podcast, even all the way to like shipping, you know, you can ship bananas and berries from Mexico and and Panama year round. Like you always, always, I always have fruit, you know, you're not connected to the seasons in that way, but these disconnects are breaking down because of the, the consciousness of nature itself is reconnecting us, whether we want to believe it or not. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to show us a couple of things. But one of the things he's alluding to is the ability for nature to humble us in, a, in our return to the sacred hoop. And that, to me, is, is powerful medicine. And that's something that I think we can tap into on these sacred hunts. Yeah, it's no surprise that he's my greatest mentor and teacher that I've worked with for seven years now. Just hearing you talk about that, I can see how his essence and being has kind of integrated itself through the experience because we are going on a sacred hunting experience to do essentially that, to humble ourselves, to be at the mercy of forces that are of nature, not in our control. Perfect example, doesn't matter how 
comfortable a hunting camp is. You can have a lodge and you can have all these things. If you want to hunt successfully, you have to hunt at sunset and sundown or, or sunset, sunrise and sundown. And at this point in time, that means staying up late. That means waking up early. It means you have to rejig your entire your entire itinerary and plan for the day because you're on the earth's time. And that is a level of surrender to something outside of our control, just an example of it, that we don't have in our day-to-day. And when you're actually hunting itself, it's the, the, the greatest example. I tell all of the hunters who come on a sacred hunting experience, paying attention to the wind is your major guide. And because, you know, these animals, their sense of smell is way superior to ours. It's their strongest sense. They're using that in order to evade predators. And we have to be in communication with the wind. We have to be sensing what the wind is doing. And we have to be fully capable and willing to surrender that the wind will change. And you get into a certain valley and the wind starts whipping around. I've had hunts where I've gone three hours on a stalk of a specific animal, and then 20 to 30 yards from that animal, the wind switches, he smells me, and he's gone. And sure, it's devastating, but there it's a practice of being in relationship with nature in the way that Will is, is suggesting we're being forced to do. Yeah, absolutely. We get little trickles of that. And, and it's, it, I've always found, I mean, it's, it's, it's no different than, um, you know, saying yes to the challenging experience right up front. Like if you, if you have a choice to, obviously there's a, there's a surrender that can happen, um, through agreement and there's a surrender that can happen because you're forced to surrender. Right. And, and those are, those are two different things, but ultimately the teaching is there and there's many ways we can get to learn the lesson of surrender, but I always find it more beneficial, at least for me, the more practices that I have that, that allow me to surrender with grace, you know, because I see the benefit on the other side. Like uh, the more often I say yes to an ice bath, the easier the ice bath gets, but that also bridges into other things, you know, like it it builds a resilience in me that goes well beyond the physiological adaptation that happens from the cold or the mental adaptation that happens from being able to, to will myself into silence and stillness while I'm in freezing temperatures and my body recognizes it could die if it stays in there too long. You know, uh, those types of practices, when we say yes to often bring back the most benefit. You know, you don't get stronger by squatting the bar each day. You get stronger by adding more weight to it and, and saying yes to showing up for back squats or for, you know, a challenging exercise. that's not going to be the most fun per se, unless you learn to love that. And you can learn to love it. Back squats, one of my favorite exercises, but to the point of hunting, you know, you're, you're up against different terrain. You're, you're on, depending, I mean, like I was hunting in Hawaii and, and on big Island and some of the other islands, but big Island alone, it's so big and there's so many different animals and locations to hunt at various elevations and the terrain changes immensely, you know, depending where you're at. Like it can go from like, you know, this kind of hard uh, lava and, and grassy and then it can go up to like these giant jagged boulders where you take one wrong step and you're going to tear your knee, you know, and you're, it's almost like walking lunges 
you know, getting through parts of the mountain. And then of course, you know, where we were at out West, um, it was pretty cool, but it was mostly like hill country, you know, there was some ups and downs, nothing crazy. And then at the same time, like hauling a, <laughs> hauling a, a, a male audad out, it, it, I, I, you know, thought I was going to do the, the John Wayne shit and throw it on my back. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> I'll take a hand with this, grab a horn, you know, and had one of the guys grab a horn. We drug it back to the, to the little buggy and, and, and hauled it back that way. You know, and I have no, no problem humbling myself enough to do that so I don't come out of one of these injured. You know, it's a different, different scenario without technology around and things like that. And, and likely, you know, depending where you're at, you're going to feel dress the animal right there on the spot and not have the luxury of hauling it back and having a cable system and all these other nice things. But I say that because, you know, each one of these hunts that I go on, there's a different terrain there's a different environment depending what time of year it is we're up against the elements and those could be different you know hawaii had paper thin sick sick of stuff on and um you know i'm sweating around the clock i'm sweating right when i get up at 5 a.m just because it's humid and and the temperature's there and then you know you guys just went and it was just starting to heat up in texas you know that's much different than when i was field dressing my odd dad and it was six degrees outside you know just totally different but all of these things are tuning us into what's happening right now, the circadian rhythm of the earth that we've been disconnected from. Yeah, there's the weather, there's the terrain, there's the time, the the light-dark cycles. There's so much, you know, like I said, I call it earth time. And attuning to that, attuning to the specific type of hunting is, is a completely different challenge too. You know, duck hunters, they don't get a lot of credit for sitting in extremely cold ponds in December, you know, laying there waiting for birds to come. You know, sometimes hunting in the blind can not feel as action-oriented, but you do that in Michigan with your hands freezing and you're trying to do archery, that's a whole different type of endurance. Then you got public land hunting for elk where you're going you know, like I did 50 miles in a week in Idaho, just up and down mountains, up and down mountains. And the incredible thing that I found in a lot of those situations is how much that can provide a type of medicine. You know, one of my experiences when I was hunting for elk on public land like that, we were not getting great sleep in camp, you know, in a campsite. We we're going 50 miles, you know, in the course of a week. And we're just, it's just so much elevation change. I'm not eating that much food. There was a there was a moment where we had to cross a mountain, and it was it was pure shale rocks. So everybody's kind of like slipping and sliding. I'm not scared of heights, but I'm not comfortable with heights. <laughs> and I'm going around there, and it's like by the end of that that shale mountainside, I was so triggered that I got super emotional. I was questioning, why am I here? What am I doing hunting? I'm so naive. Why am I in my relationship that I'm in? Like It was just like a, a deep medicine ceremony. I got back to camp and I started crying. I started crying. I was emotional. And it was like, the physically, I was so you know beat down that I was open to spirit providing me with with humbling and that shows up in so many different ways you know at a certain point during these sacred hunting experiences i started to 
notice and almost use as a like a, a key performance indicator how many men go through some type of like serious emotional experience whether it be crying or you know just something really intense and it's it's really high it's a really high number of men that have something profound come and you know there's many different specific types of medicine but it's all it's all of the earth like I, I always say I'm just I'm just a facilitator I bring people to the greatest teacher that there is which is the earth yeah it reminds me of burning man you know like there's there it's it's par for the course at every burn that someone that you're going to have a breakdown at least on one day and it may not last all day it may be as short as 5 minutes maybe 5 hours but at some point you're going to get fucked up you know and it's and it could be you know a combination of uh recreational drugs or alcohol or or plant medicine or any of these things but that's not it it's it's the elements it's the dust storms it's the 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 super cold temperatures at night and the super hot temperature during the day it's dehydration it's um the amount of people that are there, you know, it, and it's the whole thing. It's the container that has been set. Now I'm not going to go back to burning men again with this, you know, vaccine law that they're trying to propose to people, which is in essence, the man itself. I mean, they might as well burn a giant hypodermic needle in the center of the fucking uh, playa for, <laughs> for what they're trying to pull off here. I don't think a lot of people are going to show up to that, but um, there's parallels, you know, there's parallels between that. And I think on these, on these hunts, they can be super frustrating. I've only hunted public land once. I did it in around Thanksgiving with my buddy uh, up in northeastern Oregon in the town of Joseph, and it was a rifle hunt. And we didn't see the ass of one elk till the last day, and it was gone like that. No shots fired. Fifteen miles a day. You know, um, it had snowed day one, and then it warmed up, and then it cooled off, and there was ice on the ground. So every fucking step was a crunch. You know, I was like, we're not going to get anywhere near these animals. And, you know, he had hunted there, you know, most of his life and had some ideas about where to go, but public land's vast, you know, and, and, um, we're covering a lot of ground going up, going down. And, uh, you know, just like you said, like our sleeping situation was decent, but at the same time, um, there were times where I broke down, you know, there were times where I was like, what the fuck am I doing out here? You know, this is, this is a waste of time. I'm away from my wife and kids. I'm not going to come home with anything. And there was medicine in that experience. There was medicine in coming up short. There was medicine in understanding, like you don't always come home with an animal, right? And that, then when you do get that, you know, when I was hunting in Hawaii for axis, and we're, we're going to talk about this upcoming hunt we have for axis deer, I was the only guy out of the whole group that didn't leave with one. Everyone else, Ben Greenfield, Peter Atia, Kyle Tierman, everyone else got an axis deer or multiple axis deer. And I got none. Thankfully, I got to eat it the whole time I was there. But like going back now, I have a much deeper level of respect for that animal. It's not easy. It's not a, a it ain't whitetail, you know, not that whitetail's easy, but it, it's not whitetail. It doesn't taste like whitetail. It tastes better. It, everything else, everything about it's better and more challenging. Um, so I'm super pumped for that. But, you know, I bring that up because every experience has its lessons. Every experience has its learning and every experience goes beyond the act of killing an animal. They go way beyond. It's stretching into parts of the psyche that, that you know, we can point to and allude to, but you don't fully understand it until you're in it. And you, you know, still long after that, you're unpacking things, just like making a trip to the Amazon. Long after that experience, you're going to unpack more 
and it's going to unfold in different ways in your life. And I think that one of the cool things about the hunt is it's legal. Like we, we can do that, you know, and we can, we can, um, bring us back into a level of harmony and resonance, not only with nature, but with our food and what we eat and, and cultivating that for ourselves is so empowering. And it's something that's been lost that yeah. we can take back now. Yeah. I've had, you know, I've had friends to your point about unpacking over time. I've had friends who've gone through the experience and a month later they're having a conversation with somebody and they realize mid conversation that they didn't do anything to make the kill that they did. It was an offering. The animal offered itself and it was, you know, the, the situation was such that, that he was able to, to, to make good on it. But honestly, it's so much of, of, of the experience is in my judgment and the way that I try and curate these experiences for the purpose of transformation and for the purpose of having these insights. And that's why having, you know, some type of, of medicine work can be so powerful as well, because myself personally living in a city, living in the paradigm that we live in, sometimes it's really challenging for me to completely connect to the subtle teachings of nature and getting a little bit of context or perspective through some type of medicine can be super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your, to your point, I think Nate, Nate came back, he's sitting here watching behind the camera, um, just jumped on his podcast yesterday, but he was talking about the, the necessity to tune into the land and let the land tune you right prior to the medicine and prior to the hunt itself. And it's something that I had first really recognized with Porangi, you know, working with him in Sedona. Um, and I, I'd, I'd, you know, there's been a couple of experiences, medicine experiences where, you know, the bulk of us were out there early on the land um, with Porangi meditating, you know, in the, in the caves or meditating out where the, the, um, old cultures had been and really tuning into the, the harmonics of that, of the energy field in Sedona, which is powerful and just getting settled, you know, really, really reviewing why am I here right now? What is it that I'm trying to cultivate? What, what, on a very practical, practical level, what am I giving birth to? What seeds am I planting? And, and what am I, what am I needing more understanding and awareness around, you know, and with that space, as we enter into the medicine space, so much is more is revealed to us. So much more becomes clear contrasted with guys that would drive up from LA, you know, and just, Hey, I'm, I'm, we're not going to make it a day earlier. We got held up doing this. We got, you know, a little bit ungrounded, you know, and then they show up like right as medicine's getting served and they're on a fucking completely different wavelength. That's happened a couple of times, you know, obviously we've, we've, <laughs> you learned from it. Um, but, uh, and of course, you know, people aren't just showing up willy nilly to these sacred hunts saying like, Hey, all right, I'm ready to go. I got my, my gun. And, you know, it's, it's not like that. Um, but we've, we've, we've had to learn from those mistakes, I guess you could call them, um, uh, with Sedona and other places in particular, but you know, that, that idea that Will talks about so much in, in, in his books and in walking with bears that there are eco fields 
that exist. And the eco fields is the harmonics of a particular area with everything there from the birds to the insects, to the plant life, to the rocks and the, and the, and the geometry of the land itself that holds its own resonance. And that resonance is speaking to us and informing us constantly. You know, they, they I forget the, 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 the paper they were talking about, you know, with, um, it might've been the forest bathing article that came out, <laughs> which is such a funny ass term, but, uh, I've spoken about this a couple of times before on the podcast, but they did a study in Japan where people who spent 30 minutes on a 30 minute walk, three days a week in Japan, either in a city versus in a forest. And in the city, they saw, you know, the walk improved a couple of things, a couple of parameters, but no major differences. Whereas in the forest itself, there was a 60% reduction in depression without any pharmaceutical inputs, right? 60% drop in depression if you spent 30 minutes a day, three days a week walking through the forest. And the reason for that is plants are communicating consistently and they do it through smell with pheromones and, um, and then of course the energy field itself. Uh, and that's, you know, some people may not may not yet be aware of subtle energy and things like that. I think uh, I'll link to an episode that Paul Check did with Dr. Ibrahim Karim, uh, founder of Biogeometry. It's one of my favorites on Living 4D. They take a three-hour deep dive into subtle energy. But point being is that the planet, you know, that's an avatar, Pan, or Pangea, or Pandora, or whatever. Like we think of that, like oh wow, you know, they're connecting to their animals with their little velvet thing behind their head, and they're doing all these different things. And it's like that's our fucking planet. It's ours right now. It's always been ours. Ours is communicating constantly. Ours is conscious, and we have the ability to step into that. You know what Will calls, and he, I think he wrote his thesis on this uh, eco physics was the eco field, how it's always engaging with us. But the eco field of the city is different, you know, and, and I was I was telling them about this, you know, my tiny ass backyard in my suburb, you know, we're planting bamboo trees and banana trees and different things like that. And it doesn't feel big enough. And then I had the the remembering, you know, as, as Charles Eisenstein says that any, any decision made, any act that's made for the good of all is felt through the all consciousness because there's no separation. You know, and as I had that remembering, this hawk was circling right above me and, and, and started to cry out. And I was like, oh, fuck, and just fucking floodgates, you know, the synchronicity. But, um, you know, he's like, you're building your own eco field that's going to hold resonance for your entire community. The more you plant and the more your neighbors plant, and that's going to tune people in. And what's cool is we see, I see a ton of people in this neighborhood that all have flower gardens and there's tons of butterflies and hummingbirds and bees. And they, these things just show up as you do that, right? And, and biggest little farm, as they start to put into the land, the, the offering is made and the resonance is there. And you see 89 barn owls show up. You see like all these different systems come in and form a whole ecosystem on just 200 acres. And they, they, in seven years, create effectively the Garden of Eden, you know, on a barren wasteland, an old apricot farm. Uh, and, you know, all that to say, like, wherever we go, wherever we hunt, we're going to tune into that field. And that, ha- that has its own medicine. You know, we don't really know it until we experience it. And even then, we're just getting a taste of it. You know, we're, not, we're immersed in it, but for a short blip in time. It's not like we're going to live there for six months or something like that and really find out what Kauai is all about or really find out, you know, what, what, uh, the mountains of Colorado are like. Um, you know, yeah. One of the, the beautiful things about the, the, the experiences that I curate is that when we actually go into medicine work, we've already spent 
a day out on the land. And now I take everybody's cell phone. So they're disconnected from the outside world. They've just started to connect to the subtle now in nature. And sure enough, people have much bigger like life you know life changing profound experiences with lower doses because they're sensitized to their natural environment and the way that i look at nature in all these different areas where we hunt it, it, it's it's akin to a lover every lover is different with different needs different desires different reflections of things and and we have to attune to each of these eco fields just as we do different lovers and one of the things that i find really spectacular is to learn and i just follow my curiosity but learning about the traditional peoples that were on the land before anglo settlement and colonization and everything really helps to give me a sense of what language that land speaks because those people were so intimately connected with the earth, they were so formed by their environment. You know, the Comanche, who are local to this area, would open up a vein on their horse's neck to drink blood to survive in the harshness of Texas and the Texas panhandle in, the, in this environment. And of course, this environment created an incredibly hardy people. And so there's this, there's this really close interplay between indigenous cultures and what the land is. And it's, it's, it's something that not only do I bring it into the hunts, but I think it, it offers us a portal, especially for beginners who don't fully know how to connect with the subtle energies of the plants, of the environment, of the mountains, etc., gives kind of a portal into, into those, those realms. And of course, just feeling and taking the time to feel what it is like to be in a place is is so powerful too and when we you know go to hawaii that that'll be something that we focus on upon arriving before we even get to the hunting is like what is it's just like just like a lover you got to build the trust you got to build the relationship before you start to negotiate the give and take yeah, absolutely. You don't just show up and whip it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a caressing and a, a, a tuning in for sure. You got a book that you've been writing and rewriting for some time now. Unpack that for me. Tell me what it's about. I, I know nothing yet. I think you, you mentioned it briefly on the last podcast, but bring us up to date on what you're, you're trying to harness with this. Because you've, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've read a lot of books. I, I get paid to read. I enjoy reading. And a lot of my favorite books have been recommendations from you. So I know like what you're tracking is the stuff that I'm, I'm really into. And I know that this has been, you know, uh, all the books that we read influence, you know, what we teach and, and what you're writing is a lot of what you've learned and alchemized and want to teach now. So unpack that for me, brother. Yeah. Well, when I, when I think about all that hunting has provided me in the, in the way that I do it, I I want to provide 
something for people to get the sense of what it is, but I want to do it in a way that they feel. And for much of my life, and I think the the current paradigm is is very oriented toward the mind and and, and having uh, intellectual arguments and studies and all that stuff, and that's great and that has a place. But especially with nature and my relationship with it, it is so heavily feeling based and so oriented in in how that connection, that reverence, etc., creates. A, a feeling of being at home and similar to Boyd Vardy's book and how it's short, it's stories, but it feels so good, right? You read it and you just feel good as you read it. And that's really what I wanted to create. I wanted to, to take not just my stories of, of hunting, but also the stories of so many of the participants who have gotten to shepherd through the experience i've gotten to learn from their experience in in it's in our own way uh, that has been yes yeah, something that i want to share with others and we're we're storytelling creatures you know the the first stories that were ever told by our species before we were verbal creatures was the story of a footprint in the mud it was a story that was told of an animal walking this way and then running this way and we're starting to piece together what this animal is doing. That's a story. And that's what I wanted, what I wanted to create with the book is, is stories and parables that provide contexts uh, for us to, to, to view our own life. And, you know, perfect example, we just went on a hunt. We got back this weekend and one of the the men who who participated, he uh, the first night he shot an animal, and he witnessed the the guts hanging out of this animal on a shot that it wasn't a perfect shot, and they tried to track it, and they lost it, and they couldn't find it at night, and he has this experience of Friday night of the low of the lows. I could tell in his body language, I kind of, you know, wanted to coach him through it and, 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 and be empathetic and, and recognize that there was a lesson in there specifically for him and that the only way, you know, to reconcile could be to just be present to that teaching. Sure enough, the next morning they go out, they're trying to find the animal and they find him. He finds it specifically and he has this elation and this joy. And I shared with him, you know, you cannot have that joy and that elation of finding the animal if you don't have the despair of, of the night before. And so these, these lessons start to become evident with people who, who participate in the experiences and it's, it's 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 knowledge it's wisdom that many of us are you know we have a relationship with the the wisdom or we've maybe heard of it or it's not something that's super new my observation is when it's in the context of a story and a story that that touches us so deeply as a species that has hunted for so long it it is kind of a way of sneaking in the medicine 
with the candy, so to speak. Mm. And that's that's what I want. I want people to read the book, to listen to this podcast, to come on and experience whatever it is that they do and just recognize that hunting is a practice and it's a practice that can transform your life. It's not just a way to, to get meat or to get closer to your food, as great as those things are. It's a, it's a tool for transformation. Yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because I, on this last hunt, like it, 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 I, I had a shot, uh, the last hunt that I was on, I had a shot for the Audad pretty quickly. Um, you know, towards the tail end and it went over, went high over the animal's back. I wasn't, I wasn't really geared in and the rifle kicked me so hard in the chest that it centered me. And I was like, okay, but now we had to track because they were gone. And through the, the, the five laps that we took over this property, I, I was crunching through the mental of the why, you know, like, why am I here? And, the, and, and it was really breaking down any story that I had on the why. It was breaking down the story of, um, you know, I'm going to feed myself and be able to feed myself and feed my family and my tribe and my community. And it was like, all that's bullshit. Not this time. This time for me was about engaging in death for life. That, that the understanding uh, that those two lines are on the same line of polarity the extreme of, of birth and death are one thing. They're in one circle, right? Where you, where you draw the demarcation of a birth and a death, that's, that's on there, but it's still the same circle, you know, and, and really viscerally understanding that I will participate in killing for the sake of killing to give life, you know, and it was a very, you know, Kali energy, which is, you know, something that's not, I haven't spoken a lot about it on this podcast. We've taught a lot about it in Fit for Service. Um, but really, you know, the, the energy of, of death and destruction to bring forth something new, you know, and it was engaging with that energy for no other reason than to engage with that energy, you know, and that, that to me was a, that was a first. And it was like, I had to agree to that before, or else I wasn't going to get an animal, you know, and sure enough, as I'm, as I'm grappling with that, like, no, it has to be more than that. It has to be something else. It has to be to feed. It has to be all these things. And I could see how easy it is for me to go into a grocery store and buy meat. Now the bulk of my meat is consumed that way right now. You know, like I'd like to say that the majority is game meat and the majority is the animals I hunt. And it's, that's not yet the case. You know, I don't have a freezer full of meat yet. Um, maybe that'll be the case one day, but even still, if that is the case and it becomes that way, it'll become that way um, or it won't, but it's, it's, that's not the point behind it. The point is that I was being shown is I have access to that. I have wealth for that. It's not, you know, the, 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 the story and the narrative that I had used before to, to take an animal's life was that it, it was like I was dependent upon killing the animal for food. And that's nonsense. I'm not, you know, I can buy, I can purchase. And there's no issues with that. Um, and at the same time, if I, if I could say yes and participate in that way with engaging with death's energy, that that was my experience this time. And then that's what I needed to engage with this time. And as I said yes to that, you know, our boy Barry's like 200 yards, 
And I'm, I'm like, I mean, it lit, the wheels are spinning in my mind and I finally just acquiesce and I'm like, okay, I'm going to engage. This is the reason I'm here. And boom, he whispers, 200 yards. And I look right ahead and there they are. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, the, the timing, you know, when you think of God's timing and the interconnect, you don't have to call it God, but like if, if everything is consciousness and quantum physics understands this, it's not an airy fairy thing like all is God. You know, I, I love Paul Selig and all is over nothing is, is a quote that I throw out often on this podcast. There's a much more visceral understanding though, when you see how things link up in the divine matrix, like when one thing, it, when a decision is made in my mind, that's not vocalized and nature's response is immediately like to the second, within a second, a fraction of a second, you know, the synchronicity in the backyard of, no, my backyard does matter. You know, my, it, it actually does matter the bamboo that I'm putting in, in, the, in the ground and the oxygen that it's giving and the carbon it's sequestering actually does matter, however small it is. And then ping the hawk right above me. You know, like the, the, the timing that happens with these realizations and understanding can only be the workings of an intelligent creation, an intelligent creator. And to feel those things, you know, I, they're often missed in our daily, you know? So like the more time that I can give to my meditation practice, to being in nature, to doing transformative experiences like a sacred hunt or a medicine journey or a fast, you know, any of these things that change my resonant field and allow my awareness to expand, they're unforgettable and I can't place any one of them higher than the other. I can't say that ayahuasca is more important to me than a sacred hunt or that, you know, um, meditation is more important than gardening. They're all fucking tuning forks. You know, they all matter and they all affect me, uh, in various ways that, that improve my life immensely. Yeah. And what you identified, the feeling is so critical because you, you, how long have you known intellectually about this relationship with death? I mean, we're not unintelligent beings. We know that something has to die for this meat to arrive. What you got to experience, and what I, at least what I heard from that share, is that you felt it at a different level, right? And that's the, that's the key to embodying so many of the virtues that we hope to embody is to, is to really feel that knowledge become wisdom. And I call that relationship with death, death medicine, which is something that is very present in the sacred hunting experiences. There's something about taking a life that is opening the portal. We're, we're, we're tearing through this kind of cookie cutter, helicopter, parent, protected world, even though we're killing an animal, it is creating an opportunity for us to mentally go to those places. And even on our hunt, there was multiple instances of that happening besides that own share, which I'm glad you shared that. I had, uh, we hadn't connected about that. If you remember Brian, as he's thinking about his daughter, who died last year and who he said comes and shows herself in the form of birds. We're sitting in a cave and this bird just comes up right behind me and he starts bawling, crying because of the timing showing, you know, his, his connection to his daughter and his, his daughter showing up through that bird. And man, I cannot tell you how many men have 
completely transform their relationship with death, whether it's the suicide of a friend that they never fully processed or, you know, mutual friends of ours whose fathers are going through, you know, cancer and things like that, or the list goes on and on and on. It is, it, it is so powerful to have a relationship with death, but here's the thing. When you have a relationship with death and you really can, can come to grips with it and wrestle with it and be intimate with it, what happens to life is completely amazing. Yeah, it's full expression, right? We're no longer in the safety bubble of, and, and we see this in so many ways. Dr. Zach Bush talks about that, you know, our disconnect from the death as a ceremony, you know, when, when, when instead of, you know, mourning and having, you know, your dead relative either in your house or outside your house for days, you know, before some type of burial or, or thing is enacted. Uh, instead, they're, you know, pumped full of formaldehyde and fucking painted, you know, some weird... I mean, I've seen a few dead... I remember the first time I saw a dead body um, at a funeral with the makeup on, and I was like, that's not, that's, that's not this kid. You know, I had a friend die, uh, I think, when he was a freshman. I might have been a sophomore in high school, and I could barely look at him. I, and at the same time, I couldn't look away, but there was like, it was like the face paint on this thing was so unnatural. I was like, what the fuck did they do to people when they die? You know, um, it's, it's, and even that, you know, there's a lot of closed ca- ca- casket funerals. Like there's, there's a disconnect and a severance from that. There's a severance within our food. You know, we see that in Food Inc. The, this thing shows up perfectly packaged and neatly on the counter and it's marketed in a certain way. And it's, you know, you, you see, um, you know, grass on the front of it. And you're like, oh, cool. It must've been grass fed. And it's just, you know, some feedlot fucking cow that lived in its own feces for the last six months of its life. Whatever the case is, it's, it's marketing. It's, it's a different thing. And, and it's, there's, if there's no act in, in fully understanding that, there's no reciprocity. You know, it doesn't mean like I, like I said, I don't kill all my meat. I'm still buying stuff from the grocery store. I'm buying, you know, the highest level animal products that I can, but at the same time, um, participating in that reconnects us to an inherent part of ourselves that's been lost in modern culture. You know, and I'm not saying it's nefarious or the deep state did this on purpose. It's none of that stuff. It's just, there are things that we have been disconnected from and, you know, the little, little decisions that have been made long enough over time where we veered off course. And this is one of the ways that we can bring us back on course is in fully integrating ourselves with the death process. Yeah, there's fantastic quote, St. Andrew. He says, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. And this practice of, of hunting and being connected is just a constant practice of being intimate with that life-death you know, cycle. And... I don't think it's nefarious. I don't think it's intentional, you know, minus the incentives that financially, you know, push us down certain rabbit holes. But well, food is <laughs> food is nefarious, at least on the financial <laughs> portion. I'm talking about, you know, the, the 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 death of humans and how we handle human death. Right. Right. Like I don't know if that's nefarious or not, but it's certainly not in accordance with how you know previous cultures viewed death and how previous cultures were connected to death. 
they used to, most cultures used to have sky burials and they would put the body on some elevated platform. And the idea was that they would, it would be an offering back to the earth. The birds would come take some, the bear would come take some, the other scavengers would come take the body and it would go back to the earth. And in fact, interesting side note, but you look at anthropologists, they create stories of what humans look like from fossil records, right? And oftentimes the anthropologists will see these these fossils that are together in a skeleton. They'll say, oh, that it was a brutal life. Their existence was tough based on all these, you know, markings and injuries. Well, there's a good argument to be said that any full intact skeleton is somebody who would have been outcasted from their tradition or their culture. They would have been independent humans that are not part of a culture and therefore would not have been put on a sky burial when they died. So we have this like view that life was so hard and so violent when in fact we're, it's just a poor data set as far as what we're looking for. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, the relationship with, with death uh, in that regard is, is one of cycles we've taken from the earth. We're giving back to the earth. And I think it's dangerous or it's unproductive for an individual to not be intimately connected to his or her own mortality. And similarly, it's dangerous to be disconnected from the death that we create as far as our food is concerned. Because what happens when we're disconnected, you can start to see with some of these, you know, meat alternatives and things like that. And I think there's some well-intentioned motivation behind there, but I think underlying a lot of the, the motivation is, is a disconnect and the path to hell is paved with good intentions. But if you're disconnected from that process, then it can create poor side effects. Yeah. We got a lot of poor side effects in the world right now. (laughs) We, we definitely have some poor side effects. Um, what else, what else do you got in there for, you know, in the book that you want people to know about that might illuminate some of the teachings and the wisdom that you've gleaned from these experiences? Yeah, well, I think first and, and foremost is how much of a almost a, a a savior in a way, a deep, deep connection with the earth can be. And we live in a society where everybody has, you know, challenges, whether it be depression or, or anxiety or isolation or uh, a lack of meaning. And to have a relationship with the earth that really treats her like a mother, like Mother Earth, that I find to be one of the most long-lasting relationships, the, the, the relationship that'll serve the most, that'll be the, the, the most helpful during 
significant challenges, when you feel alone, when you feel depressed. And if you can learn to turn to her, then it is this, it's just, it, it's, it's another way of saying like love, like turning to love and being able to feel the, you know, the experience of unicity and oneness that comes through a psychedelic experience, the more you can really attune to nature and, and, and develop that relationship, the more that it can just come from being in nature. You don't need the big, blast yourself to the moon psychedelic experience in order to feel that oneness and unicity. Yeah. And if you start, you know, if you, if you can build that connection prior to the psychedelic experience, you're, you're likely starting in a better set, a better mindset going into that. You know, there's, there's no, you know, better may not be the best word, but I've certainly come to the altar, you know, on my knees many times. Um, and I've had, challenging experiences I've spoken about on this podcast many times with the medicine, but at the same time, you know, if I can attune and come in, I've had just as many journeys where I've come in not needing a whole lot from the experience because I feel so home and interconnected with all things. And those experiences are fucking amazing. You know, like I get, I get just as much out of those experiences too. Cause it's, it's the stuff that's not on my radar. It's, it's maybe not going to be so much work. It's kind of what Kalindi Ayi was talking about, you know, prior to my 30 gram dose that made me interested in it. And he said, when you come to a place, you know, all these tools from ayahuasca to boga and all these things, they're, they're great healing agents and can be used with that intention and do very well in the right container with the right curanderos at the helm uh, for healing. But at a certain point in time, you come to a place of having been healed you know, you've done your work and then it becomes about exploration. You know, it becomes a, 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 about changing perspective and opening up and becoming a co-creator, you know, and it's, it's less about, you know, fixing or re-looking re at different areas of the past, um, you know, maybe shedding some of that baggage, which is very important work to be done, uh, certainly culturally, you know, we, <laughs> we've been shitting on each other for thousands of years and, and there needs to be amendment there. But once we've come to a certain point in our lives where a lot of that work has been, you know, those mountains have been moved and we're in a place where now it's, it's, we have one question, what do we want to do now? You know, and I think that's, that's where, you know, having the, the resonance with whatever eco field we're in, um, feeling grounded and at home and centered in our body, you know, having that root chakra lit and knowing wherever I'm at, I'm home. Like when you can start to feel that in the world, no matter which part of the world or the earth that you're on, you feel at home. That's a pretty remarkable feeling to have. And entering into altered states of consciousness, whether it be breath work or fasting or any of these different modalities, from that place, that too is a fantastic way to engage in altered states. And I think that's, um, that's something I think where we're going to see a lot more people heading towards as you know, you see the psychedelic renaissance going on, but also all these other modalities coming out and really being pushed to the forefront from Wim Hof and Stanislav Grav with holotropic breathwork, Anahata, shamanjelic breathwork. We're learning more and more about the caves. Aubrey's doing a documentary on his darkness retreat for six days in darkness and the amount of DMT he was secreting on the six days. Full visionary, it's pitch black and he can watch his urine come out like an electric faucet you know, in the, into, the, into the toilet. Like he, he could see everything in the room in total darkness because of the amount of DMT he was secreting, right? So like, and, and maybe that's just a little teaser trailer for what's coming, but um, you know, there's, 
there are so many ways we can engage into shifting our consciousness. And it is so necessary right now that we shift our consciousness, that we begin to see outside the box, that we look for innovative, innovative ways to engage in our lives to contribute to the whole. And that we recognize that we're a part of the whole. You know, we're not king of the fucking mountain with all things under us, under our dominion. We are a part of something, a power that is greater than us, and we have the ability to influence it on a great scale, you know, but it takes the respect and reverence and humility to engage with it appropriately. And that's what nature's offering us right now. Yeah. And, you know, to bring it full circle to some of what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, this writing a letter to the animal that we'll be hunting, naming that animal, it's all a way of recognizing that we're not the king of the mountain and holding that tension. There's, there's, there's a few different ways to approach that, the, the death relationship. One is to say, oh, it's natural, so we're going we're gonna to do it. You know, some people don't name their animals because they don't want that connection. It's natural. We're just going to kill them. And the other way is to completely avoid it. You know, I'm going to be vegan. I'm not going to eat meat, whatever. And there's something that's so unique and beautiful about having both the poles and that tension at the same time. Feeling the joy and the excitement and the pride and the grief and the sadness. Same time. And that is the oneness that is our existence. We're, we've got good, we've got evil. We've got we've, everything that exists in the external world we have you know, within ourselves. And there's you know, certain practices that allow you to experience that. And nature is for sure one of them. It's a, I've heard, I forget who was on Paul Check's podcast, but they were talking about this. The, the, to bear the cross is to hold the tension of poles and extremes. And if you look at a cross, you know, it's head to feet, positive, negative, it's left to right. And the very center of that is right where our heart is. It's right in that middle center chakra, you know, where the seat of the soul lies. And to be able to hold that and bear the cross is the ability to see through the illusion of polarity. It's the ability to see through good and evil, to see as God sees, you know, and that's, that's a really, I don't, I haven't mastered that yet. There's been moments in time where I felt that and what you're speaking to, you know, the, in the, in, in the specifics of killing an animal, you know, I've really felt that, you know, that was, that was a big piece in my last I didn't know whether to freaking cheer or burst out into tears. Like I felt like if I was like, yeah, I would have been like, yeah, you know, like with a whimper attached to it. Cause I had all the fucking feels all at once simultaneously. And there's very few experiences in life that can grant us that, that can give us access to that. And, you know, bringing up Will again, one of the things he talked about on our podcast was that the, you know, these experiences are sensual. They're beyond the intellect the intellect is engaged, but it's beyond that. Um, Paul Chick talks about Ken Wilber a lot with spiral dynamics. And when we traverse the planes of, of consciousness, if we do it correctly, we don't jump and ignore everything that comes below that. They're fully integrated. 
It's, it's integral. We have to become integral beings. We don't just land at the top and then everything else is nullified. We land at the top and everything that came before it is integrated into that experience, which would include the mental, the emotional, the physical, all these other bodies of awareness that we engage with, all senses engaged, you know, and, and that's a different experience than reading it in a book or um, taking our word for it you know, by listening to it on a podcast, like uh, hopefully these are, you know, these, these wet the taste buds and, and want, you know, give you a taste of what it could be like. So you want to experience it for yourself, but to engage in that, you know, a- anything, whether it's a vision quest, a plant medicine experience, it is visceral, it is sensual, all the senses are engaged and that's what makes it unforgettable. You know, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's so apropos, Ted Decker talks about the avocado. If you want to know the avocado, and you've never had one before, I can describe it. I can paint it for you. I can describe the texture of the skin, the softness of the flesh, the, the, the taste of it, the coloring, how it goes from a dark green exterior to a light green, like a lime green, and then a yellow on the inside when there's a big hard seed, brown seed in the middle. None of that lets you know the avocado until you eat an avocado. It's the sensual nature of eating an avocado that lets you understand the avocado. And the same goes for any of these experiences. And it's, I feel a great sense of gratitude for the work that you're doing specifically because I get to tag along with these experiences and, and, you know, bring this crew of listeners that I have to these experiences and, and give people the opportunity to, to, to go through it themselves you know, like, and, and I don't get to do that with ayahuasca. I don't get to do that with DMT. I don't get to do that with a vision quest even, you know, like I'm not qualified to have someone sit at a sacred site for four days, no food, no water, and be the guy that's in charge of keeping them alive. I'm not qualified for that. I'm not a black belt, you know, but to, to be able to participate in something like a sacred hunt, which is on that level, you know, like I said, like there's no, no one is higher than the other. Like you're going to get a ton of medicine from these experiences. It's been a real pleasure to be able to offer that alongside you. And we've got one coming up in Hawaii. Tell us about Hawaii. Tell us about the animals we're going to be going for and the terrain and, and, um, the harmonics of the land, brother. Yeah. Well, I'll just start by saying it's the most fun the most rewarding hunting experience I've ever had was Hawaii. And specifically on the island of Molokai. Uh, Molokai is one of the not so often visited islands. It's not super touristy. In fact, it's mostly locals that, that live there, you know, mostly native Hawaiians. And it is such an incredible essentially it reminds me of like the moon or Mars. It's just this deep red earth and has unique foliage. Uh, mesquite, mesquite trees are everywhere. Somehow I think they were you know imported at some point, uh, but these mesquite trees are everywhere. And that's really important because that is the key food source of the axis deer. So these axis deer, there's 20,000 axis deer on Molokai and about 6,000 people. So they are in these huge herds and they eat the mesquite pods. And 
there's a reason why people use mesquite wood and they smoke meat with mesquite and things like that. It is a very good flavor. And as you know, Axe's deer already is unbelievably delicious. So you combine their diet with mesquite and it's the best meat that I've ever had. But the hunting experience itself is so unique because it's you're essentially hunting these animals that are in herds and you don't often see that big of a herd of axis deer in for example like texas where they're free ranging so you might see like 200 of them that are migrating every day they migrate to water to drink like near the city and then they migrate away during the day and so you're first trying to see if you can catch them on that migration if you don't then you're spotting them and you're stalking them. And some of the most vivid memories I have are just seeing a mountain on across the valley and just seeing these like ants <laughs> crawl. You just like ants crawling along. And then I look at the binoculars and I'm like, wow, there's like 200 axes deer. And then we're on the chase. You know, we're trying to cut them off by, you know, going through all these different mountains and yeah it's just it's an exceptional experience and as you know as anyone who's been to Hawaii knows it it has a special energy and it has a close connection to the native peoples that have been there for so long and so there's different you know holy sites and sacred uh sites on the island of Molokai and something that I bring into a lot of these uh, experiences is is doing a hike in silence where we are having the opportunity to connect with the land and to really get in resonance with the the, the place that we're we're going to be hunting so it's yeah it's my by far my my favorite experience and I'm excited to to share it with uh, with the crew of 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 good like-minded men, just like the last one. Yeah, absolutely. And ladies are welcome too. You know, we, we had that question before, uh, Sarah Gustafson, uh, Alex Ruchiski's amazing wife and dear family friend has expressed interest in coming on these. She's like, do women go on these? And I'm like, not typically, but they're invited. Like, absolutely. Like, you know, the, I know a lot of the ones that you put together are specific for men and men's work and that can be very powerful, but there's so much, you know, to this for, for anybody, uh, male, female, whatever you identify as in between, like it, it doesn't fucking matter to me. Um, we want you there if you want to be there for the experience, because the experience is going to touch us all in different ways. And there's medicine for each of us. And a lot of the, the, the lessons that we each pick up as individuals when shared amongst the group is medicine for the entire group. You know, Paul Chuck talked about that when we were doing his uh, his painting workshop about a month or two ago, and he was saying, "Pay special attention." You know, we painted the first day these mandalas, and the next day he broke them down from an art therapy standpoint. And he said, "Pay special attention to as I'm speaking to these other people. You know, don't just tune out and wait for me to get to you, because everyone that was drawn here was drawn here for a reason. And the way the universe works, consciousness works, God works, it's by design." that you're going to glean something from everyone's breakdown. And that's been the case for me on, on every one of these hunts is understanding like there is medicine inherent to each person's experience. And there's stuff that I can learn from every single person's experience. And, um, you know, this is going to be phenomenal. I'm super pumped for it. 
Uh, it's August 20th through the 24th, correct? Yep. Yeah. So those are the dates. Um, I will have a landing page eventually, but we're going to link to your, your website for the landing page uh, as we open this up to people. And um, that's, that's uh, something I've really been looking forward to and I'm excited for because it, it's been almost two years now since I've been out that direction hunting and, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it, brother. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited to, to be back out in Hawaii first and foremost, be back on the land and connect with those animals and that land, but also just to be able to, to, you know, co-create experiences with you and bring, you know, people and, you know, the people that you bring, like, nothing is on accident i got an opportunity to meet nate and uh you know that led to to us collaborating on things and so many relationships that have formed it's 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 beautiful to get to see what happens when you bring people who are of like mind who who have a desire for transformation and and connection into one place together as you know from fit for service and all of the facilitation that you do it just creates some some amazing uh, opportunities so yeah they can visit sacredhunting.com slash island kyle and that'll take them right to more information and some amazing pictures <laughs> i'm not appropriating by 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 that by that website island kyle although that does have a cool ring to it all right y'all uh thank you monsel for joining us again we'll we'll run it back i know we're gonna have many of these this is uh, the third of many i don't I think it's been our, our third episode together um fantastic brother i love you brother i'm looking forward to to august with you love you too man thank you so much for coming and sharing <laughs>